0: Our scripture lesson today uh, comes from the chapter that our church takes its name, Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin with verses 1 through 4. Let's share in God's good word together. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, on a day like today, you might need a new canoe. A new canoe. If you have your sermon notes, invite you to take those out. We're continuing in our series, um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And so um, it's so good to have you all with us uh, in particular, Cole, I want you to know I see you over there, home from West Point. We're glad to have you with us. We all show your appreciation for our servicemen? The one time you take a bite of food, and I recognize you in front of everybody. Poor man. God bless you. I've known Cole since he was about two. It's so good to have you home. So, as we get going today, uh, we have been working as a staff through a book called Canoeing the Mountains. That sounds like an odd term, canoeing the mountains. And um, it looks like this. I recommend it to you by Todd Bolsinger. It's about Christian leadership in uncharted territory. And certainly that's where we find ourselves Uh, in the American church, particularly mainline Protestant denominations. uh, We find ourselves to the mountains. And I love the way uh, Reverend Brandon uh, and Reverend John have set this up over the last uh, last week. In 1804, uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, they set out to find a water route to the Pacific Ocean. Now, as having just purchased the Louisiana Purchase, they were used to the Appalachian Mountains. They were used to rivers flowing to the sea. Uh, they knew the mighty Mississippi. And so they just simply assumed, uh, everyone thought, that there must be a river that runs from the Continental Divide down to the Pacific Ocean. And so <laughs> these guys, they come. Now, I want to thank General Thompson uh, because he got me a new military-grade laser pointer. Check this out. Bam. Yeah, right? Look at that. Thank you, General Thompson. Appreciate that. So these guys are heading over here, right? And they get to the Continental Divide, and they are sure, they're just sure with their canoes on their backs that it's going to just flow nice and easy all the way to the Pacific. But there's no river. What do you do when you got a canoe and you're looking at that? Now, does that seem like a good idea to try to haul a canoe up there? Because you're just sure there's going to be a river on the other side. Have you ever been there in your own personal life where you're, you just know this is going to work out? You just know that your child's going to do this or go to that school or uh, you think you're going to get that promotion and you get your canoe, you do all the things everybody tells you to do and, and you start that way and then the thing that you've been working your whole life for, you have tracked, you've actually brought other people on board and, and they're following your leadership and Guess what? There's no river, and you've got a canoe. You need something really much different. You don't need to just tweak your canoe. You need to look at something completely different. And certainly, that was what was going on in the early church. Jesus had said, Come and follow me. And they did. They dropped their nets. They left their businesses. They left their tax collecting booths, and they followed Jesus. And then they killed him. And he died on a cross. And they thought, Well, how am I going to follow you now? And then he was resurrected. And he, and he walked and he talked to more than 500 people, even at one time, for 40 days, which in the scriptures means a long time. And then Jesus pulls the most crazy leadership thing that you could do. He says, I'm going to leave and you stay. Well, how do you follow me when Jesus goes up to heaven? This is my favorite meme, if you haven't seen it. Jesus, in essence, does this. He pulls a meme on him. I'm going to be right back. He just goes on up to heaven. Well, how do you follow Jesus who says, be right back? And we're still waiting, right? 2,000 years later. But but we're not waiting for the physical manifestation of Jesus as much as we've received the power of the Holy Spirit. So they had to completely reconfigure their canoe. They, they didn't know how to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, wait here, stay right here, and I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, something they didn't really fully understand. They had to completely think I knew about how they were going to go out into the world. They'd watch Jesus feed people, teach people, heal people. And now Jesus says, I'm going, you do it. You ever had that moment in your life where somebody says, oh, you've trained up, you do it. And that is, you get a lump in your throat. You're like, I don't know if I can do this or not. And he says, you can. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the first century, Jesus ascended to heaven instead of an Israeli throne. That's what they thought. When, when they thought of the Messiah, they thought of uh, Christ and Messiah are the, are the same word. Basically, one's in Hebrew, Messiah, the other, Christ, in Greek. This, what they thought was that Jesus would be the next David, the great king who would restore Israel. They would kick Rome out, who was the occupying force, and Jesus would be the ruler again. That's what they thought, but that didn't happen. So what happened next in the story when Jesus says, stay here in Jerusalem, which is pretty dicey, by the way. Right. Because they're looking to kill them. Right. Romans are the head of the Jewish state were they wanted these people dead. And Jesus says, no, no, stay there. So so what often is hard for us to translate 2000 years later is this, that what happened next was unexpected. Yes, but not accidental. Not accidental. So oftentimes when we read these stories in the Bible, we're like, wow, that's weird. Nobody saw that coming. Well, hold on a minute. We have to get back into the context. We have to get back into what was going on. Pentecost was something that happened every year. And it happened every year, 50 days after the Passover. This was something they they were used to. So for us, for example, we'd say, oh, there's going to be the great military ball. Well, you're not really uh, surprised when the general shows up to the military ball. That's what they do. And so Jesus says, wait here for the day of Pentecost, and the Spirit's going to come. And people should have expected it because that's what God does. God shows up at Pentecost as God shows up at Passover. And so it's the same thing um, in the Canoeing the Mountains. Captain Lewis and 2nd Lieutenant William Clark, they were competent friends. They knew what they were doing. They were trustworthy. They had led so well on the map that they were trusted off the map. And that's something that we often forget in the Christian life and faith. That we're in such a revivalist culture that we think that we can live however we want to and that somehow there's going to be like this miraculous thing that's like boop and all of a sudden there's salvation everywhere. Well, that's not the biblical witness, friends. The biblical witness is that over time the people of God are found faithful. And it's important. The people of God are found trustworthy. The people of God are found competent. And it's in that competence that other people come to know faith. So how you live day to day matters greatly. It matters greatly. That we would be a good witness in the world on the map, so that when those special times when Jesus leads us off the map, others will follow and find Christ. See, so when it comes to Lewis and Clark, they had incredible skills that they had shown over years. And that's why Jefferson picked them. They were military leaders, they were cartographers, map makers, they knew how to navigate rivers, they knew frontier medicine. They knew how to heal people on the plains. They knew how to do administration. They knew how to do organization. They knew how to do human relations. They knew how to stop a mutiny. And they knew strategy. They knew all these things. And so when it came time for them to lead in a new way and say, we're going to have to drop the canoes. The men with them could follow. Because they had proven themselves faithful over time. The same thing is going to be true in the upper room. And it's real easy to overlook this. Those gathered in the upper room were trusted leaders as well. I mean, it is a who's who of followers of Jesus. These were the core leaders of the Jewish Christian faith, of the sect within Judaism known as Christianity at the time. If we go back a chapter into Acts chapter 1, I want you to see who's still there in Jerusalem. It says, when they had entered the city, Jerusalem, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Read read this list with me. It's Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew. And Matthew and James, who's the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not the bad one, the good one, right? And all these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including who? Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. Of course the Holy Spirit's going to show up there. These are people who have given their lives to Jesus. They have followed him. They've been faithful. They've been with him three years. These are the who's who. This is the core of the people. And they have been found faithful. There are, of course, there are moments of, of faithlessness. But on the whole, Mary, the very mother of Jesus, is there. All of his brothers. All of his followers. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to fall on these people. These people. And no one should have been surprised. Because these were the core Folks, it wasn't just some willy-nilly gathering of, of folks just, you know, oh happen to show up at the same place at the same time. No, not at all. So what does the Bible say? It says, after Jesus uh, suffered, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them during these 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, we know that the kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. So when someone's blind, they can see. When they're lame, they can walk. When they're deaf, they can hear. If they have leprosy, it's, it's cleansed. If they're dead, they become alive. While staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, which is a tall order in and of itself, but to wait there for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is Jesus at 40 days. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So it really is not many days. It's just 10 days from there. He says, hold on, stay right there, and you will receive power. Real power, godly power, kingdom power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my what? Okay, so notice this. This is where the church gets this wrong all the time. In an individualistic religious idea, we get power to help ourselves. That's not what Jesus promises. Jesus promises power to be his witness in the world. Those are very different things, friends. So when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, it's for us to do the things that God calls us to do. To say yes to the things Jesus calls us to and to say no to the things that Jesus says no to. So, And we're going to be these witnesses in our hometown, in Jerusalem. And then next, in Judea, which would be sort of like the county or the state. And then Samaria, which would be more like a nation. And then to the ends of the earth, which is, of course, the ends of the earth. So it's from the inside out. And this is the way Christianity spreads. This is the way the Holy Spirit does it. It's in you. It's in your family system. It's in your church family. And it grows out from there. As witnesses, But the power is for us to be a what? Come on, this isn't hard. The power is for you to be a what? Witness. A witness. That's why we get the power. And it's very important that we receive that power to go out and live rightly in the world. So, the resurrected Jesus tells them not to leave but to wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't leave, stay there and receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says the Spirit you receive will give you power to be a witness for Him. A witness for him. This is so important, friends. And then what the scripture says happens after that promise is that all of them, right? Not some of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, again, super important that we get this right. The Holy Spirit is not a personal gift, but a gift to the people of God. It doesn't come to this person over here or that person over there. It comes to all of them. Knows that this is how this works, that the Spirit of God comes to a people in community. Now, this is super instructive for us, because you may have a friend, or you may have even known someone who claims to have words of knowledge uh, from God. That's super dangerous. You just need to know that, because if I claim to have all knowledge, and I'm going to tell you what God says, you better be able to confirm that some way, because otherwise you could be in deep weeds in a hurry, right? Because all I have to do is say, well, God told me to, for you to give me your business, Right? God told me for you to give me your car. You'll notice a lot of people who say say things in God's name never say, Well, God told me to give you a thousand dollars. Right? Most of the words of God are for for their benefit, not for yours. So it's important that we understand that when someone speaks in the name of God, that there's other people in that community that are also confirming that witness. That God speaks to the people of God, not the person of God. We got to get that right. It keeps us safe, it moves us forward. And it allows us to do what the Lord asks us to do. And it keeps us uh, from those who would uh, be deceitful in God's name. The other thing that I want to point out here is that the language gift in Acts 2, 4 is not the same as the Greek term glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues, uh, which is an ecstatic uh, prayer um, language. Now, I know people who do speak in tongues, uh, and and that's fine. Uh, That's not a a problem. Um, But that's not what's happening in Acts 2. In Acts 2, people are given the ability to understand one another, for people to be unified and not divided. And so that's, that's important that we understand this. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about glossolalia, this, this extemporaneous um, prayer language, uh, which can be very helpful. Um, and he says is a gift, but it's the least of the gifts. What happens in Acts 2 is different. That's a different um, gifting, which allows people to understand one another from actual languages. So the scripture says this in Acts 2. Now there were what kind of Jews? Devout, Devout, right? Matthew, Bartholomew, right? All Peter, James, John, the Mary of the Mother of Jesus, his brothers, the devout, from how many nations? Every nation. Right? Now you'll you'll notice that this includes Arabs. There were Arab Christians, day of Pentecost. Uh, This includes Jews, uh, people who are still divided, but that was not God's plan. God's plan is for all of us to be united. Now, how has this happened? Why are there, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the world? How is this even possible? What are they doing there? Well, I'll remind you that the Roman Empire at that time covered pretty much the whole known world as they knew it. And so you could have uh, what's known as diaspora Judaism uh, over here in Africa and down here in Egypt or up here in Syria. Israel's about here. Uh, over here in what's now Turkey, Ephesus is about here. Uh, or over here in Italy, you would have Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem um, for this time, for this festival, for this pilgrimage. And there were three of them. And so basically what would happen is even if you lived pretty close, you saw that huge map, but over here, if you were Jesus, and you lived in Nazareth, and you had traveled, some would say three, some would say up to nine days, uh, all the way in to come into a pilgrimage, because you're doing this by foot, right? You're, You're walking it. And so if you're, if you're even further away, then you're really far away by foot. And so imagine this. Let's say that you knew that you were going to grandma's for Christmas and Thanksgiving, right? But they live in Dallas, and you're walking it. Are you going back and forth, or are you just staying at grandma's till Christmas? You're staying at grandma's till Christmas, right? Because there's no way to get home and get back in time for the next big pilgrimage. There's no way to do that particularly if you're the one making the dinners, right? Because if you've got to make all the food, there's no way to get everything prepared. And we're going to go through that in a minute, what Pentecost required of the people. So the Holy Spirit's role is to encourage and unify a world that had been divided by language since Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, we have the Tower of Babel story where there was one language and people wanted to make a name for themselves and rather than for God, and God scattered their language. And after that, Here in Acts 2, it's the opposite of Genesis 11. He's bringing all those languages together. So the context, friends, is this. Three times a year, Jews made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would celebrate the goodness of God towards the nation. It wasn't God's goodness for all people in all places. It was for them as the Jewish nation. They would do the same thing around the time of Yom Kippur. They would do the same thing at the Passover some 50 days earlier. And so in Deuteronomy 16, now if you want to see where this is, it says three times a year, all your males and females, they're just not listed, uh, but the whole family will appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At that time in Jewish history, it was Jerusalem at the temple. At the festival of unleavened bread, which is Passover, the festival of weeks, which is Pentecost, and the festival of booze, uh, which is around the time of Yom Kippur. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed, no. They shall give as they're able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he's given you. So, here's what's really cool. Every time we gather here, we take communion because what Jesus did at the Passover and the Seder meal was to include everyone. And we'll say this regularly when when we break the bread. What was meant for one people at one time as a celebration over and against the Egyptians is now a meal for all people for all time. Jesus transformed that. What we often miss in the Pentecost story is that Pentecost celebrates the 50th day following Passover, which was when God gave the law to Moses. Right? So they leave Egypt, they go out into the wilderness, and they have to figure out how to live together. So God gives Moses the law. And and if you know those stories, what you'll know is God is represented by fire and wind and smoky mist and the prophets of Joel. So all of this fire language, all of this wind language would draw people's minds back to Mount Sinai when God gives Moses the law. And so the Pentecost, what the Holy Spirit is doing, is the same thing Jesus was doing at the Seder. Again, transforming this nationalistic, big celebration to a celebration for all people. So Pentecost is literally 50 days, pente, 50 days after the celebration. So this was a big celebration after Passover. And this is what it would look like. If you wanted to celebrate Pentecost the way the priest had described for you to celebrate it, you would do this. From that day after the Sabbath, you're going to count seven weeks because that's 49 days plus one. You get 50 days. Then you're going to present your offerings of grain to the Lord. Okay, well, that doesn't sound too tough. You bake some bread. That's not hard, right? So you just do that. Then after that, count them. Aren't they cute? Oh, how many lambs are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Love that laser pointer. All right, right? Seven unblemished lambs a year old and two loaves of bread. This is going to be kind of like partridge in a pear tree. Hang in there. After you get all the lambs wrangled around, and they got to be perfect, right? So you don't want to travel with them if you, if you don't have to. You got to get a bull and a bull and two rams because they're going to be a burnt offering to the Lord. You're going to get some ram steaks, right? And then another grain offering and a drink offering, a whole jug of wine. And you're, this is going to be pleasing to the Lord. And so then after you, get, uh, you bake the bread, you get the lambs, you get the rams, you get the bull, right? You get the wine. Then you got to go get a goat, a male goat. Anybody ever try to walk a goat? It's not easy, right? And this is for a sin offering. And after that, you got to go get two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice as well, Right? And then on that same day, you're going to make a proclamation. And then you're going to gather a holy convocation. And you're not going to do any work. You're going to celebrate. Kind of like we do at Thanksgiving or Christmas. Can you imagine getting all those things and traveling to your hometown or traveling back for Pentecost? There's no way to do that. So they just stayed in Jerusalem. And they gathered those things. And the Holy Spirit, basically, this is, this is what happens. They're gathered. They're ready for that big celebration. And at the sound this sound of of fire and wind as they would have associated with God as God giving the law to Moses, they were bewildered because each one of them heard others speaking in their native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Now, Galilee is that area up north where Jesus hung out. This was known as a place for fishermen um, largely, and largely agriculture. Um, A correlation in Oklahoma would be, you know, maybe Woodward. You know, western Oklahoma, um, it's sort of the biggest area out there, O'Keen, Fairview, that's where I graduated. And, and, and the thing is, you know, when I lived in New York, everybody expected you to, to speak another language, right? They, if you're going to go to Spanish Harlem, you're supposed to know Spanish. Or uh, if you're down in Chinatown, people spoke Chinese. Or if you're in Little Italy, they spoke Italian. That doesn't happen in Fairview where I graduated high school, right? We know some sort of Oklahoman. That's what we would know. And that was it. We didn't know anything else, and no one else knew anything else. That's what it was to be a Galilean. And so the thing is, they're asking, well, since I graduated from Fairview, how do I now know eight languages? Because everybody's speaking all these other languages, and I understand all of them, and they understand me. How is that possible? Because you see, Galileans, they were not known just their, you know, it wasn't that they were known for their um, ability to speak. They They were known for their lack of ability to speak. I mean, they basically said, look, there's no way that people from Fairview or people from Galilee, there's no way that they, that they know all these languages. How is this possible? They said that only God could do that. God was bringing together people that people would never think should go together. And as Jesus transformed the Last Supper, the Holy Spirit now transforms the law. Because you remember that at Mount Sinai, the law was for the Jews alone. That was their law. It wasn't the law for everyone. And God was blessing them. And so what the Holy Spirit is doing is the same thing that Jesus was doing, which is drawing all nations together. They were there. He blessed them. They understood one another, maybe for the first time in their entire lives. And Acts 2, 21 uh, says it like this. Then read it with me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, um, I probably, hopefully I don't need to say this out loud, but I will. It doesn't mean that just one day you go, oh, help me, Jesus. That's not what it means. It means when you give yourself to the Lord, when you say, come live in me, I am yours, uh, the people gathered there, right, of of those people who were devoted to him, as they call on him, everybody who does that will be saved. You give your life to Jesus, he'll save you. That's what that means. Everyone. Who's included in everyone, by the way? Oh, that's a good answer. Everyone. Yeah. Because the thing is, from the time of Pentecost to this day, there's still people trying to, to carve out somebody who doesn't belong. Isn't that true? And in some place in your life, maybe you were one of them, right? I mean, I was. I remember in high school, uh, I had good, well-meaning friends telling me that I was going to hell because I danced. I mean, seriously. I mean, they, I, I, was, I was the student body president. I said, we're going to have a dance. And they said, we can't have it in any of the schools because we don't believe in that. And so I had to go to the fairgrounds. And I, I asked KJ 103 to come up, and we danced. And boy, did my parents get an earful. Because in that place at that time, that wasn't allowed. So I was hellbound. Because I can boogie. Right? So that was it. Now you have to understand that everyone in the scripture means everyone. Right? That's what it says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's important that all the world knows that. And and the way that we're saved is by following the Holy Spirit that then teaches us and reminds us not of what we want to do what Jesus did, what Jesus said, what Jesus taught. And so if you wonder, is this the Holy Spirit talking to me? All you have to do is crack open your Bible and see if it matches the life of Jesus. And if it does, then it is. And if it doesn't, then it's not. It really is that simple. So, Jesus himself in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, he says this, I have said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, notice that he's advocating for you, always for you, never against you, will teach you and remind you of all that I've said to you. This is Jesus' own words. So this is what we know that Jesus says the Spirit's going to do. We see the Spirit do this in the book of Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit in action is seen most clearly in the person of Peter. Now you all know Peter. Peter is the guy who hops out of the boat, and he means well, but then he sinks. Peter's the guy that when they come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus is intentionally going to the cross for the salvation of the world, he cuts off a guy's ear because he doesn't get it. And Jesus has to go, hold on, Peter, I've got to heal this guy now. right? So he heals him up. He heals up uh, the slave of Malchus. And, and then Peter's the guy that when they say, weren't you a follower of Jesus at the fire as, as Jesus is on trial, Peter goes, no, I, didn't, I don't even know the guy. Right? This same Peter... And Acts 2, now filled with the Holy Spirit, gives the first major Holy Spirit sermon. He says, this is Peter speaking, This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Therefore let the entire house of Israel, he's speaking to Jews from around the world, know with certainty that God has made him both, Jesus, Lord and Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, that is not a smart sermon, right? If you've got a thousand people around you and, and you tell them that the death of the Messiah is on your head, that is a tough sermon. It's the kind of sermon that will get you killed. But that's not what happened because the Holy Spirit was with him, and God blessed him, And the people there understood what he was saying and they turned their hearts to God. People responded by turning their hearts to God and being baptized, which is exactly what Jesus asked his followers to do. And so you see this massive transformation in Peter from from basically a coward guy that doesn't get it at all to holy boldness bringing thousands. 3,000 people were baptized that day, the scripture says. 3,000 people came filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in Jesus' name. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter, what should we do? And Peter says to them, repent, turn your life towards God. That's what repent means. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's available to you. It's available to you today. It was available to you at your baptism. Many of you receive that gift at your baptism. So here's the thing about the Holy Spirit that I want you to know. That the Holy Spirit makes us better. Each and every one of us makes us better, but not better than, right? So there's this whole list in in Acts chapter 2. I I hope you'll look at it after church today. I won't take you through it. Cretans, folks from Mesopotamia, Arabs. I mean, you name it, they were there. And all of them were being brought together, unified, and made better, but none better than another. It's so important that we see this. So all of us, when we gather here in this church called Acts 2, we're here to become better. To become better, but never better than. Better And the promise is for who? Everyone. So every person that ever steps on this property, whether it's for soccer uh, or baseball, uh, homeowners association, uh, or for worship, a youth group, children's programming, Bible school coming up, it's for everyone. There's not a person that steps on this property that the Holy Spirit is not for. It's for every person. And we don't determine who comes. You think about how you got here. Nobody made you come here. Somehow, some way, the Spirit tapped you on your shoulder. Well, some of the kids did. Your parents made you. I get that. But for the rest of us, right, we, we simply showed up. And someone welcomed you. The Holy Spirit of God had talked to some other congregant before you and said, welcome the next person that walks in. And they did. And now you're here. And next week, you can do the same for the next person that walks in. That's how the church is built. Because, again, the promise is for you your children, and for all who are far away, everyone, everyone, friends, whom the Lord our God calls to him. That's what the church is about. Leslie Weatherhead uh, says that the essence of the Christian message has to be very simple. Because from the time of Acts 2, it was people who were very simple that received it. They weren't necessarily the highest literary folk around. The only qualification uh, to get to Jesus was that you had to be hungry for him. And some of them were just hungry for food, right? The 5,000, the 7,000, the 4,000, they just wanted to be fed, and Jesus did. Weatherhead boils down the Christian faith to this. He says, Christianity simply is the acceptance of the gift of the friendship of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. It's helping you accept the friendship of Jesus. And this friendship is available to us today through the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus promised. And you say, okay, well, hold on. Well, how do you do it? How do you do this? Weatherhead would say this, and I love this. You can do this at communion today. He says you simply kneel down, and you ask for the Holy Spirit. And then you get up, and you believe that you've received it. It's that simple. And then you go out, and you live as if you've received it. And then you'll find out that indeed, you have received it. You simply kneel down, you ask the Lord to come in your life, He does. You get up, you go out, and you live as if Jesus lives in you because He does. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we have friendship with Jesus that understands all of us. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. And we, we go into this atmosphere in which we become our best selves. Our best selves, as God intended. And this is the great and wonderful friendship of Jesus available to you since the book of Acts chapter 2. Because, friends, what I want you to know is this. That what Jesus was in the Bible, he still is today. He's still the same today. Able to do everything he was able to do then, he can do now in your life. So I want you to think about it as wonderful promise, friends. That what Jesus once was, he is eternally. And this friendship is available for you right now, this day. So the big question is, are you willing? Are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to, to walk into it in this wonderful friendship? Now, these will sound like very churchy things to do, uh, but they work. So let me, let me share them with you very quickly. Here are three action steps to help us become more and more friends with Jesus through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Uh, first... If you want to hear more from God, get in community. Do exactly what you're doing now, gather in community. Because that's where the Holy Spirit comes. It comes in community. It comes to the people of God, not a person of God. It comes to us as a group. Secondly then, pray with others. Really, ask people to pray for you and you pray for them. Uh, Don't just gather together. Uh, My hope is that every time we gather to do anything, we're praying for one another. We try to model this as a staff and in leadership. Every time you gather with someone, just ask them, how can I be praying for you? And pray for them. Don't put it off. And somebody says, you know, I'm really struggling with something. Just pray for them right there uh, if they're open to it. And then finally, read Scripture with other devout followers of Jesus. Um, And just a few weeks, we'll be starting Disciple Bible Study again in August uh, or maybe September. Um, But we're going to go through the Bible again. And it's so great to be with people and be in the Scriptures together, pray for one another, and to be blessed. It's a good and wonderful thing. And the Church of Jesus Christ has been doing these three things since the days of Pentecost, found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. It'll work again. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll talk about how they lived that out uh, in Acts 2, 42 to 47. I hope you'll uh, be back with us as we look at God's good word together. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you empower us, you guide us, you teach us, and that your love and care is open to everyone, to everyone on the planet. Help us be unified in our love and service to you,